What would it take to arouse your life, to experience more connection, more pleasure, more realness in and outside of the bedroom? I'm August McLaughlin, and this is Girl Boner Radio. Did it totally work? It totally worked. We are rocking this studio and everything. How is that going for you, by the way, being out of the studio? That little snippet illustrates something today's guest does perpetually, rolling with the punches no matter what comes her way. Having to switch to recording by phone on this app I hadn't used before was a really small example. But as you'll see, A.M. Davies is someone who takes pretty much everything that happens in stride. Not in a people can walk all over me or ignorance is bliss type way. It's more like challenges bring them on paired with a hefty dose of do not mess with me or people I care about. AM was a stripper for 18 years before an accident resulted in her having a below the knee amputation. She's the founder of United Pole Artists, the director of Fistful of Steel, a documentary on the history of pole dancing, and currently serves as coordinator of Soldiers of Pole, a labor movement to unionize strippers. Together, we explored her personal journey, including how her teenage dreams of becoming a stripper, yes, she dreamed this as a teenager, came into fruition, the accident that completely changed her life, what she hopes will change in the stripping industry, and her advice for anyone who wants to cultivate more sexual freedom. Stick around after our chat for thoughts from Dr. Megan Fleming for a listener who misses her pre-pandemic masturbation practice, which sounds really fun, by the way. And if you enjoy this episode, be sure to sign up for occasional Girl Boner Extras at the link down in the show notes. Now, please enjoy my chat with fellow Period Network podcast host, A.M. Davies. I would love to start by going back to your early years. You knew that you wanted to pursue stripping, becoming a stripper in your teens. Tell us about that. Well, I had been exposed to sexually expressed women, like freely sexually expressed women um, at a very young age, just from living in a neighborhood where the kids were more rowdy and I just had access to like porn magazines. (laughs) So, you know, at a pretty young age, I kind of stumbled across these things and um, I found it interesting, not scary or weird. And then I came across the Joy of Sex book as a child in my parents' home and again, was fascinated. And then again, at like 12, 13, found Playboys in my grandfather's room after he died. And because I was tasked with cleaning his room out. And I was just so fascinated by these women. And then a few years later, I saw a story about strippers on Fox News. And it just looked so accessible. Whereas everything else before was just on these glossy pages. And it was like a fantasy But then when I saw real life women on the news, I was like, oh, they actually dress up and do this thing. And I was just curious. And like, I just wanted to be like them. I don't understand why. I didn't understand at the time. I'm sure now I looked at them and thought, wow, they're so free and they don't give a fuck about anything. And that's how I, that was bubbling in me even as a youth that I needed to be free and make my own choices. That's really beautiful. Do you remember if anyone, or did you tell anyone that you were thinking about this? Were people surrounding you also sexually free, or 
did you have this idea that so many of us do that, oh, this seems cool, but also this needs to be secret? Like, did you absorb the taboo of it? Did you know that there was stigma? I think I did know that there was stigma, but I didn't care. So when I was like 15, 16, I was like, oh, I want to be a stripper. Then I was eight, 17, I practiced with my friends from high school. Then there was a time when I was like 18, 19, I told my friends, I'm going to do nude modeling. And they tried to talk me out of it. I guess that was the first time I was really faced with it because leading up to that, nobody had said, don't be like those girls. That just didn't resonate. That wasn't a message that I had. The message I had was do what you want because my parents never stopped me from doing what I wanted. So that that's and where I've been very blessed. My mother was like, eh, if that's what you want, just as long as you're safe and you tell me, then that's what you're going to do. So when they, my friends tried to talk me out of it, I was like, oh, people don't like this? Well, that's dumb. Well, fuck them. I'm going to do it anyway. And then they weren't my friends anymore. It's such a great thing, I think, when parents give you that freedom. I think it's the greatest thing that they can provide is to say, I want you to be your own person. Do you remember what your friends, like what their arguments were for not stripping? It was dangerous um, and that I would just be caught up in a dangerous world and, um, you know, my body is sacred and, you know, like it's not something to be showing off as, as what, you know, whores do and you're not that type of person and that kind of stuff. Interesting. So you found new yeah. friends and you also, yeah. how soon after that would you say you really took the leap and started? It was about maybe two years, a year and a half, two years after I said I wanted to do nude modeling that I started stripping. And I would have done it sooner, but this was the one thing my mother did put the kibosh on when I said, okay, like I found a strip club, like I'm ready, you know, because I had told her before I wanted to strip and I think she thought it was some silly idea. And then I was like, I'm ready, you know, I found this club. And she's like, you can work there, but you can't drive my car to those types of places. So that was her sneaky way of, like, allowing me to be myself, but making it more difficult so it would, so I might not do it. And and it took her a while to accept that. All of the other things that I did and said she could accept, but when it came to, like, actually doing it, it was it was hard for her, but eventually she did accept it within, like, six months after me doing it. It was, like, full on, like, okay, this is what I'm doing. Get over it. Moving on with our life. I accept everything that you're doing. Oh, I'm so glad that you've had that. That's, that's beautiful. I think regardless of what we do with our lives, to have that support system is really important. Do you remember yeah. your first time stripping or your first? Absolutely. Tell us about that. What was it like? Yeah, like on stage, like in an actual club. Yeah. First time stripping? Okay. Because my first time actually stripping was in a very well-lit living room with eight of my high school friends. <laughs> awesome. <Good> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was 17. There was four guys and four girls, and we made it even on purpose to make everybody comfortable. It was like we all talked about it. We discussed boundaries. <laughs> what? You were so professional and all about consent culture before it happened. <laughs> yeah, we were like 17 and 18. Yeah, and like nobody touched me. They let me like get fully nude on them and lap dance. I lap dance on them and I spread my legs in front of them and nothing weird happened. And they all supported me and clapped for me. And then I put my clothes on and we drank a bunch of beer after that. That was 
technically my first time stripping. And my real initial time stripping was at the Spearmint Rhino in Van Nuys, California, here in the Valley. And I wore, like, a pair of chunky platform heels and, like, a full black cat bodysuit. You know, it's, like, really hard to take off over those types of shoes. <laughs> I didn't really plan. I didn't think. I didn't know what I was doing. And I had a zero experience. And at the time, that was one of the most high-end strip clubs in the area and where, like, the, some of the best talent in the Southern California was working. And they were like, well, you've got something, but you're not going to make it here because these girls are sharks you need to go to Blue Zebra, our sister club in North Hollywood. And that's where I learned to speak Spanish. Really? Yeah. Wow. Okay, so you made the shift to go to this place that might be a learning place for you, I guess, not realizing you're also going to learn another language. That's awesome. Did they provide any training for you at all, or is a lot of stripping (laughs) complete improv? Because I imagine the first time must be, if you haven't had – any training besides your high school club, <laughs> I could imagine it feeling like, oh, my gosh, here I go. I'm diving off the deep end here. There's zero training. Zero training. Still, to this day. Actually, the training you might get now is if you go to a pole dance studio, that might be the closest training that you'll get. And that's if they accept even that type of pole dancing. Some pole dance studios are, you know, have different curriculums. Um, so there's zero training for us anywhere. There's no manual. There's no book. There's very little. Let me take you under our wing. We're starting to see that shift now because we're starting to understand more. The younger generation has learned is just so much more compassionate in general in society than the older generations. And the younger generations are a lot more woke. So they are helping each other more. But when I was there, um, it was very, it was very cutthroat. And it was during a time when the economy was shifting and strippers, when I came onto the scene, I was stoked because I made $1,000 very easily every night. Every night I worked, I made about $1,000. And I remember saying, oh, my God, it's amazing. I make $1,000 the best night. And the dancers that were there before me said, oh, two, three years ago, it was double this. Oh They're God. like, this isn't even that good anymore. I came in at a time where their income was dropping off, and it got a lot more um, cutthroat and, you know, mean girl type stuff, and at least in the environments I was in. I don't want it to sound like that's all it was. But it was a lot more of that than there is now. That's really interesting. Because you'd had your sights set on this and you had done some of your own practicing, were you already a dancer? Did you have skill set that you could rely on? Tell us about the learning curve. I'm sure a lot of it is learning as you go. Definitely. A lot of it is learning as you go. And I would also say that prior to my stripping career, I had 11 years of competition, cheerleading, and dance under my belt. So I was very accustomed to being on a center stage in front of people. I was very accustomed to using my body for performance style and using my body to invoke emotions. Um, Because as a cheerleader, I was also, not only was I the loudest, but I was the shortest. So I was always front and center. And I'm always kind of I just kind of tend to be the leader when I wherever I go so I was always at the point and I was always calling the cheers and so when you're in the front row especially towards the middle 
it's hammered into you to stare at the judges and make face, make face and maintain contact with the people that are watching you. And so I tra- I use that, it translated on being on, on stage. And I think that a lot of my particular power on stage is my ability to maintain connection with the people that are watching me and not just maintain connection, but I have a goal every time to invoke emotion in them and create reactions and to, and to make them feel something. And so I think that having that practice as a young person it just it kind of just developed even stronger on stage. And furthermore, because I was obsessed with sexually expressed women, I would practice for hours and hours and hours in front of my mirror as a teenager of, like, what my curves look like and how my face looked. And then I got to the club, and I had all that already in me, and it was really easy for me. It was like I was prepping my whole adolescent and teenager life for this stripping career that I had for 18 years of my adult life. Yeah. You, I mean, you literally were, you in your mind, you had set a goal and because you had that support and also this personal drive, I really sense in you this strong will to go out there and do what you're passionate about. And I know you're passionate about cultivating positive change in these arenas, which I really respect so much. So you've had a really interesting journey. I think so many of us do when we commit to some type of a, a creative path, which I definitely would consider stripping. You fell in love mm-hmm. with it. You've, you've fallen away from it. Can you tell us a little bit about that, the ups and downs and maybe a time when you felt like this isn't for me? Yeah. So luckily I'm a free thinker and I'm able to like really analyze systems and structures that are put in front of us without question. You know, we're just born into these systems and we're like, well, that's just how it is. And we don't ever question it, but I'm still human. And when I was in my 20s, I was five and a half years into my stripping career and I just was noticing the deterioration of the industry. And I started to blame the workers. I reflect back on this and I see now where that mistake was because after a couple of years of doing that, I realized, oh, it's the system. I got very, very angry at the system, which is misogynistic, exploitive, and abusive, and taking advantage of women who rely on that system. That's where a lot of things refocused for me. But there was about two or three years where I was very angry with strippers. I think for allowing what happened to us to happen for going further and further in lap dancing, in my mind, I viewed their actions as the reasons why I was being put at risk. Because, you know, if the girl in the lap dance suit next to me was giving a hand job, then that meant I must be giving a hand job. And therefore, now I was getting sexually assaulted. And so I was mad at the worker. And that's what they want you to be. They want you to be mad at each other so that you don't, what's happening in the bigger structure and their goal is to pit us against each other and that's what they did very successfully for a really long time I came out of that um, really opened my eyes and really started questioning the system and that's when I fell back in love with strippers and I owe all of them a huge apology for my ways of being and my ways of speaking 
for a small period of time. I was angry, I was hurt, and I was dealing with my own sexual trauma. That's no excuse, but it's what happened. Mm, I really appreciate the honesty and openness and your willingness to be vulnerable by saying, look, this is what I believed, because I think it's very analogous to the way that so much of society views strippers or sex workers or anybody who's in any kind of sex-related business that yeah. it's not real work and that it's not respectable. And then the blame for the challenges fall on the very people who deserve to thrive and contributing so much to society. Do you remember the turning point for you? Was there a specific event or was this like a gradual? Yeah, I think it was something that my boyfriend at the time said to me. Um, we had met at the strip club. He was a bouncer and I was a stripper. And so we were together for seven years. So he really, he got me in a lot of ways that nobody else did. And I was talking shit about strippers one day. <laughs> and he stopped me and said, don't ever forget where you came from and the experiences that you've had that have gotten you to where you are now. Because all of those things made you who you are today. So don't ever forget that and don't ever be ashamed of that. You know, he didn't say very, what's the word for that? Like, aha type of things like that to me very often. You know, that was a very significant moment between us that I don't think he even remembers. That really made me go, huh. You know, I really thought long and hard after he said that to me. And that's when it, things started to change. That's really beautiful. It sounds like it hit you at a really appropriate time, like maybe you were starting to maybe on some level, you were feeling that you were having this this sort of disgruntlement, like these mm -hmm. negative feelings about strippers, and mm -hmm. he said the words that made you kind of dig deeper and mm -hmm. maybe, you know, get back to that passion that you've had since you were a teen. <laughs> and yeah. Then, oh, wait a minute. I think that's really awesome. Yeah. I would love yeah. to, if you're interested in sharing a little bit, I know that you, you've been stripping for 18 years when you had a, a pretty bad accident. Could you tell us yeah. about that, where you were at in your journey and, and what actually happened? Yeah. yeah, it's one of my favorite stories. I was at the height of my stripping career. I was to the point where I was helping other strippers that I had finally figured out my shit so well to the point where I was like, let me teach you. I'm saving for retirement. I'm, I pay my taxes regularly for several years in a row now. I've got credit scores that'll help me. I've like, let me show you what I've done. And I was in the best shape, making the most money. And I was living alone for the first time in many, many years in Hollywood, which is my favorite town in the world. And I was driving a Vespa, basically, like a motor scooter around town with, um, you know, hot pink braid pigtails coming out of it. And I would wear all black and leather. And I was really, really dope looking on my little bike. And uh, I was like a daredevil on the bike. And I was driving one night very late. It was a longer drive than I should have been on. Long story. Anyway, go through a green light and a young woman turns in front of me, doesn't see me, hits the back of my scooter, crushes my foot between her bumper and the scooter and amputates all five toes and the ball of the foot on impact. And I tumbled out of the scooter. Everything totally else is fine. Nothing else is broken or injured. Just you my awake? foot. Were you I was awake. I never fell asleep. I didn't cry. I didn't go into shock. I was just very matter of fact, 
going through the whole thing. I told myself right away, take this one moment at a time. And and the minute I started going like, oh, God, ambulance bills, insurance, because my insurance had lapsed and it was supposed to kick in about two weeks from that date that I got hit. And so I was like, my brain was swirling, and I was like, what is broken down there? I'm not going to be able to dance for a while. And, and then as soon as I started to swirl, I was like, nope, one thing at a time. And that was the only way I didn't go crazy. And then I get to the hospital, and they're like, um, you know, eventually they told me, what had happened, what I had lost, and that they were going to try to save the rest of my foot. And they did. Um, They saved the rest of my foot. And for a year and a half, I lived with half of a foot. And I was able to dance, not at the club, but wear my shoes and um, never able to wear very cute shoes again. And then in May of this year, I started to experience a breakdown in my little tiny foot. And the doctor said, okay, it's time for another surgery. And so I researched my options and I chose a below the knee amputation. And um, on May 29th of 2020 this year, they removed the rest of my foot and several inches up my shin bone. And now I am uh, a below the knee amputee. Very proudly. Yes, I can feel that. I can feel that for sure. When you said, and I know you talked about this in a recent episode of your wonderful podcast, Yes, a Stripper, you talked to another amputee who's also a stripper, and you shared how important the decision process is for anything big in our lives, which is something I really appreciate about you is that you're always on your podcast sharing these messages that are universal that we Mm. can apply to our lives. Tell us about that decision process because... As a dancer, as a stripper, it had to have many layers to it. What were the things you were considering? The number one thing that I considered is what is my purpose in life? And how do I make this vessel that I'm in suit my purpose and carry me through this life maintaining that purpose? And in order to represent the community that I plan to be a part of for the rest of my life. I want to dress like them. I want to be like them. I want to wear my stripper heels. I want to wear cute shoes. And I want to feel good. I want to stand on my tippy toes. Um, and I couldn't do that with this other foot. Um, so that was that was the number one thing. There's just not as many prosthetic options for someone with a half foot as there is with a below-the-knee amputation. So... Fulfilling my purpose, number one. Um, And number two was saving time and energy because there was a chance that this, another surgery that would have tried to save my foot wouldn't have worked. And then I would have had to go back and get a below-the-knee amputation later anyway. And so I joined a bunch of forums. I joined a really great one on Facebook, and I asked them, I want to hear specifically from someone who has been in my position before where you – have had to opt in for below-the-knee amputation for whatever reason. And every single person that I heard from, which about six different people, all said, I opted for below-the-knee amputation, and it was the best decision I ever made. That was really smart to yeah. talk to actual people because you only get so much information from doctors or from right. eating about procedures. It doesn't have that personal feel. So I think that was that was great on your part. So you yeah. made the decision. This was very recent. Yeah. How did it go for you? How was the process? 
I am still in recovery process. It's been 31 days since my leg has been moved. I was in the hospital uh, when the protests first started happening. I was I was in the hospital when George Floyd died, and I could smell the smoke from the streets pouring into the vents of the hospital. That's what that was like. My friends were screaming in the streets. And I could hear everyone's voices from the hospital room. And I could see everything on fire on TV. And I was just laying there on drugs, <laughs> helpless. And that was the most difficult part. Forget about losing the leg. That was fucking yeah. easy. That was nothing. Was the difficulty being away from your friends who were protesting, was it the violence that had happened? Was it all of it? It was all of it. I mean, I was also very jealous that I didn't get to set cop cars on fire. Um, <laughs> I 100% would have been on the freeway burning cop cars <laughs> if I could have been. Um, you know, I, I've been angry for a long time at our system. I've been questioning the system for years and, and very pissed off that I've been involuntarily added to this system without my permission. Yeah, it sounds like a almost like a spiritual anger in you. Does that sound accurate? Like the, Oh yeah. It's a passionate anger and it's one that serves a big purpose for you, which is how it sounds when you talk about stripping and also the amputation that has really enhanced your life. Does that sound accurate? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think that showing people that no matter what happens, you just keep going um, and that things just happen and they're just things that happen. And I just want to remind people that every little thing that happens is just a thing that has happened. It, there's not this great meaning to it. You know, um, we're just we're just like objects just trying to do our thing. And I think that we all put so much great importance on ourselves like we are the end-all be-all and, and we're not it's as a collective we are as an individual you are not that important it's really hard for me to say that and for people to to hear it because i don't mean that you're not important even though i do it's it's i'm still trying to learn how to put it into the exact words that i'm looking for but it's you are important but at the same time so is everybody else. I think that's what I'm going for. And and that you always need to remember that everyone else as a collective is more important than you. That's what I'm trying to say. Yes, thank you for, for articulating that. I It reminds me of this idea of individualism that we have in the U.S. that yeah. I haven't really thought about until I talked to this wonderful uh, sociologist, Sara Nasrzadeh, and she's from Iran, and she's talked about, when she first said it, it came out like, you're not special. <laughs> but when you get so, like, into your specialness, that, and, and in a way, that can come from being very insecure, which is ironic, right? Like, it's not right. always narcissistic. Sometimes it is. Uh, but when we're yeah. really wrapped up in, you know, I need to be this way, and I need to have that, mm -hmm. it, it really works against not only ourselves, but this responsibility that I think we have as a people <laughs> mm -hmm. to to contribute to the world in some way. Yeah, and so thank you for saying that. 
when it came time for me to need help, the amount of support, I did not realize how much appreciation my surrounding communities had for me because I spent a lot of time supporting others without question. It's just something that I've been doing for a long time and and I don't even consider it anything special that I'm doing. It's just what I'm doing. And then when it came time for me to need help, the amount of money, food, drugs, gifts, I can't even. I got so much shit. (laughs) (laughs) So much love, you know, and everyone had so many people said to me, you do so much for all of us. It's our turn to give back to you. And I was like, I had no idea. And so I really got the full scope of like karmic energy um, I think I became more spiritual and connected with my community and with my my environment because I got to witness karmic energy support me and hold lift me up and hold me when most of us would look at that situation and be like and crumble. But I had no choice but to rise up because my community rallied around me. Mm. Yeah, and I'm so grateful for that. And I walk around grateful every single day of my life also that I'm fucking alive. Because if I didn't turn to the right and expose the left side of my body, I would have flipped over the car head first. Wow. So that's real. Yeah. Yeah, that perspective. I mean, I think it's important to feel all the difficult feelings and know that our feelings are valid. Like your anger, for example, is is so important. And I think also that perspective and the way that you're approaching things as this is the life I have, I'm committed to my purpose, and where do I go with that? And relying on your community and also with this sense of of direction um, and gratitude. I'm really getting a lot of this gratitude from you for the people around you, which I know your path has really led you to this place. Interestingly, after going through that time where you felt upset with strippers, now you're in a place where you cherish them so much and you cherish this community and you want to unionize and you've called strippers a workforce that has been gaslit and become attached to its abuser, which is so powerful. Would you speak to what that means? Yeah. So in general, women are gaslit. So I just want to put that out there. Um, We're all gaslit from the moment we're born. We can see and hear So it makes sense that the stripper industry, those workers are gaslit because it's an entirely femme force. And I'm talking about female strippers um, specifically, not like contracted male strippers. They are being heavily exploited in their workforce um, because the employers, managers, owners have just gone unchecked for so very long. And we don't have support from anyone ever. We can't speak up at work for fear of losing our job. We can't talk to our government officials because then they'll start to nose around and make laws that are damaging to us instead of helpful to us. Um, I could list off several right now laws recently that the government has their hands in that is extremely potentially dangerous, has been dangerous, and could be dangerous to us. So we can't talk to them. Uh, It's difficult to reach out to just even regular community members because they don't want strip clubs in their neighborhoods. Some strippers find it difficult to talk to their friends and family because of the stigma of their work. 
So there's really no one to turn to when these things are happening. And um, since the 90s, the working conditions started getting bad, and then it's just gotten worse and worse and worse and worse, and nobody's checked anybody until Mm -hmm. now. There's stripper strikes happening all across the country right now. And there's more than strikes going on. I mean, something that I don't think people, a lot of people understand is how intelligent sex workers are. We have to be intelligent because we're constantly navigating dangerous waters because people want to rape us, kill us, steal our money, or um, exclude us from their shit. We are constantly having to figure out ways to work around and to survive without anybody's help. And so that translates into extreme problem-solving, solution creations. Um, and because we have to fend for ourselves, we have to learn more. Um, and the majority of sex workers I know are extremely intelligent, and they're building websites, and they're researching, and they're collecting information, and they're talking to each other. And if you're a strip club owner, you should be terrified right now. (laughs) That's amazing. I've had the same experience. The sex workers that I've met or known or interviewed, some friends of mine who are in sex work, they all have an incredible depth to them. They have big hearts because you are caring for people who need so much. So many of the sex workers I know, they are helping some of the most vulnerable populations, and some of them are in some of the most vulnerable populations. So to have that kind of compassion and then also the resourcefulness to have to take care of yourself and figure this out with all these crazy laws and rules and judgments is so, so huge. Tell us about Soldiers of the Pole. Soldiers of the Pole is the most incredible team of people I've ever worked with in my life, quite honestly, um, as far as, like, organizations go. It's comprised completely of women of all different backgrounds, races, and ages. And, you know, we have paralegal on the team. We have social worker on the team, strippers, sex workers. They're beautiful. Antonia Crane is our director and our founder, and I'm the coordinator of Soldiers of Pole. And... Um, we are working to make sure that the California state laws are protecting us um, and that they're doing their jobs. So we have a political action committee um, within our larger team. And then we also are trying to unionize. And we're, because in California, we are the only state currently formally recognized as employees, strippers. And this is due to the fact that the ABC test was rewritten. The ABC test is what determines whether or not an owner should classify their employees or their workers as employees or independent contractors. So the court recently ruled that strippers are also, are considered employees. And with that, it means that now we have the power to unionize and to bargain for unionized contracts that can have sexual harassment policies in place, non-discriminatory practices in place, et cetera. So that's our goal is to really educate the workers on why being an employee is more important because the strip club owners are trying to convince the dancers that being an employee is worse and you'll lose more money. And in fact, they currently are losing more money pre-COVID because the owners and managers devised new plans and ways of practicing even more wage theft and taking more money from the dancers. So now essentially 
in a nutshell, the dancers are now paying their own wages that the state is expecting to see the clubs pay the dancers. Wow. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's really interesting because right. I've, I've learned about the ABC laws and some of the bills and how they affect independent contractors who are freelance writers, and I hadn't thought about how, or I didn't know, I guess I should say, how it was affecting um, sex workers. And I know mm-hmm. that some of the legislation is helpful, some is very harmful, and there absolutely needs to be a union um, and to yeah. have protections and all of that. And I think when people, people who are listening right now, they're seeing this importance and they're hearing all of this and going, wow, yes, I want to support this. How can people help? If somebody who's on your podcast, you said that you call us civilians, like non-sex workers, how can civilians help? (laughs) I think, you know, really, here's the thing about the AB5 law. It's not suitable for every industry, for every gig worker industry. And they, they passed it. It is suitable for strippers, however. But it's not suitable. I don't know what freelance writers are up to. But they wrote it way too fast and they're not implementing it correctly. So I think the way that people, the civilians help is to pay attention to what the frick our leaders are doing. You know, they just are up there, and they, there's so much pressure on them, and they make these decisions, and they're not thinking them through, and I don't think they're talking to enough people. The reason Soldiers of Poll is on um, Christina Garcia, Assemblywoman Christina Garcia's radar, Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez's radar, we write to them and we force these people to get on the phone with them. Julie Sue, Councilwoman Julie Sue, they all know who Soldiers of Pole is because we're like, hey, we don't like what you're doing and we think this will help. What do you think about this? We don't call them and say, hey, you're fucking up. It's like, listen, we see what you're doing, but this would be helpful to us. Can you work with us here? Who else is doing that? Like who in the community ever, do you ever call your representatives? They, we are their bosses, and I think everyone forgets that. And that's, again, what I'm talking about. People infiltrate themselves into a system without questioning anything. Yeah, I'm a part of a journalist group, and I'm super fascinated and, and not surprised because of everything I've been learning that your group is as passionate as journalists that you're being that diligent, that you're doing your research and that you're offering solutions. I think mm-hmm. a lot of people wouldn't even, you know, because I haven't seen big press about how these laws are affecting strippers, which is really unfortunate because there should be no, like, ranking system based on what kind of work you do uh-huh. and and certainly no value ranking system on what kind of work you do because it mm-hmm. is so valuable. So I really yeah. appreciate that you're doing that. And then also when different yeah. communities are speaking up about these things, we can all support one another, you know, we, we can yeah. be together with the truck drivers and strippers and webcam folks who are, mm-hmm. you know, being affected and mm-hmm. the journalists. We should all be unifying. Like you were saying mm-hmm. that we are a people. We mm-hmm. All of us together are collectively. That's really important. Mm-hmm. If you don't mind, I just wanted to address one thing that you had said about mm-hmm. um, the media and there's not being a mainstream story about this. Um, we've been approached several times by very large publications and we turn it down and we turn it down because they won't let us write the stories ourselves because it's usually white men who want to write their 2000 word article and get paid a ton of money for our very valuable and very interesting story. Mm. And we're not interested in them capitalizing off of our struggle while we still don't get paid. 
Understandably. Thank you for yeah. sharing that. You absolutely should be your own voice. Yeah, and that's another way that sort of a reminder to civilians, again, is that always talk to the people themselves. Stop yeah. reading shit that they didn't write because they usually, the media gets it wrong. Thank you for yeah. sharing that. How about you personally? How can we be supportive? I want people to learn more about your podcast. I have Yes, a Stripper podcast. I interview strippers around the world, and they're everyday strippers. They're not very famous, and I do that on purpose. I mostly interview pretty just your typical stripper who has a voice and needs to be heard, and there's not enough platforms for them. And so that's what Yes, a Stripper is. And you can also follow soldiers of pole on instagram you can find us at at soldiers underscore up underscore pole underscore there's an underscore in between every word and learn more about unionization and strippers and sex workers rights and also lastly please pay attention to the earn it act every single person should be paying attention to this this is something that will affect all of your internet browsing and social media feeds if you think that you're being blocked from being freely expressed now on the internet if the earn it act goes through our lives are going to be much much worse the government is going to have way too much control over our content so everyone needs to pay attention to the earn it act and sign petitions against it and call your government officials and tell them that you do not want to see the earn it act go through Mm, thank you for that i'll include a link down the show notes so people can get to it quickly Thank you. I imagine this is the first many people are hearing about it. Yeah, it's a big deal. Would you leave us with a bit of advice regarding sexual freedom? I know that this has been a part of your life from early on, which it should be. So many people have barriers in the way maybe they didn't have as supportive parents. What would you say to somebody who's not feeling very free in their sexuality? I would say stare at yourself in the mirror and get to know yourself and um, practice loving words and affirmations to yourself first because that's where it starts and you know get dressed up and talk to yourself like you would your best friend like what would you say to your best friend who looks fabulous that day say that and do that often until it's not something you have to try to do anymore and then for anyone who's like younger and listening to what their parents are saying stop listening to what your parents are saying (laughs) (laughs) do whatever the fuck you want and if they don't want to talk to you Oh, well, they'll come around eventually. (laughs) Live your life. I would say that's my number one advice to anyone everywhere. Just live your life how you want to live it. Here is to living our lives exactly as we wish to. I really appreciated that advice. If you are dealing with barriers that make that really difficult, we are both sending you tons of love and courage and confidence in you. (laughs) We believe that you can find people who will be supportive. Speaking of living as you wish to, this week's listener question brings up a really important part of that, your personal pleasure. It comes from Brie who wrote this. I have a very glorious and, if I'm being honest, loud masturbation practice. I used to do it every few days before the pandemic. Now I have so much less privacy and do not feel comfortable doing it. My partner works from home now and I love them, all considering I would say our sex life is pretty great. But I miss my own private masturbation fun which has felt like my own thing, my self-care, etc. Our apartment is small, so I can't exactly sneak away. I'm wondering if you have any suggestions. Bree, thank you so much for this question. Here is what Dr. Megan Fleming of GreatLifeGreatSex.com had to say. Bree, I can only just say that I love, love, love your question. 
and that you actually know and own your own pleasure and that you enjoy the play of exploring your body and your turn-ons. The fact that you have sort of a masturbation practice, I kind of, A, think is awesome and kind of want everybody who's listening to realize the value of it in terms of the exploration, the play, the fun, the tension relieving. I love the fact that you're like, loud if you're honest because that just means you're losing yourself in the moment and if you think about it owning pleasure in our bodies again it's dopamine it's oxytocin there's just so many ways in which it's so healthy for us it's it's a practice not unlike yoga or cardio I'm somebody who likes to spin but a masturbation practice is equally there right up there and in fact in some ways the better part of it is as I said and always say the more you know about yourself the more you can communicate that to your partner so the other part I want to say is I'm here Hearing a, you, you know, I always sort of say you're not alone, but in this context, really not alone because everybody's either quarantined with a partner if they're in relationship and or they may or may not have children. And so it's so incredibly common and frequent that there isn't a sense of privacy, right? Biggest thing about privacy and having a time and a space for your own play is that you don't have to be consciously thinking about, you know, who's hearing, you know, is anybody else sort of aware of how you're letting yourself go and what you're enjoying? And I think that understandably that raises inhibitions. It's why in these past few months, I've been doing a lot of sessions where clients are in their cars or even in a hallway, because it's not easy to find that place of privacy where they feel like they can just really communicate and express themselves. And so, you know, I'm a firm believer that every problem has a solution. And I think this is really sort of seeking the opportunity. How do we create the condition? And so I often say, you know, all couples need space. And I've mentioned this before in another Q&A that I've done with Girl Boner. And in this particular time, how do you create that space? Because, you know, fire needs air. Relationships need space and distance to sort of come back again and to have um, the distance, the wanting, the appreciation. And in this case, it's about a healthy practice that I imagine helps you to release tension, feel good, and show up being more of the best of yourself and having more to give in your relationship. I think it's about speaking to your partner and saying, you know, what are the ways that we can give this to each other? Because their preference may or may not be a masturbation practice, but it's this role of what I call sort of self-care. It doesn't matter what it looks like. I think it's about giving each other the freedom that each of you are planning out a two to three hour window, two to three times a week, whatever sort of works for you both and really negotiating and experimenting to see, you know, if you do it once a week or twice a week, what are the benefits when you do it, you know, more regularly, you know, is once a week enough to sort of help you get all the benefits. So it's really figuring out what's best for you individually and as a couple. But I can tell you that when you block out these windows of time, it's like what I talk about scheduled sex. I don't know and you don't know how you're going to feel in the moment, but you've created this window. So what's restorative? What's giving you pleasure? What, you know, maybe it's about reading. Maybe it's about masturbation. Maybe it's about you know, yoga, whatever it is you feel like you need in that given moment, but that you've carved out this time that you both can sort of really look forward to the positive anticipation of my time, time in the apartment all or house all by myself. And that you also know you're giving that same gift to your partner. However you spend the time is uniquely up to you because it's almost like Chapman's five love languages. We all have different ones, but in this context, I think we all need protected time where we feel sort of this 
safety and privacy to just sort of let whatever comes up and flow flow without a sense of who might be listening, watching, hearing, in what way might somebody come in on you. And so when I say the value of carving out these times is it's not just to take advantage of running errands, which of course you can do, or going grocery shopping or working outside. All those are great things to do and to help each other anticipate, but that you are proactively carving out at least a two to three hour window so that you both know, even when if the person's workout's done earlier or there's not the line that they expect at the grocery store, they're going to make themselves busy because they're giving you the space and time. I'm willing to bet it's a win-win for everyone. And so as always, would love to hear how it goes. Thank you so much, Dr. Megan. I loved her suggestion of setting aside time for ourselves and anyone we might live with for our own self-care, our pleasure, however we want to spend it. And Brie, I'll add one suggestion to consider adding to the mix. If on occasion it's really difficult to have space apart, maybe you could turn some of your solo play sessions into like stealth sex. I think that could be really hot when you can't really make much noise. I love that you make noise, by the way, and let yourself do that and have this whole practice. Always embrace that. But I also think if it's not realistic at certain times and you're like, no, I really want to have this time for me now, maybe you take a shower and try to keep it secret. There are even some toys that make no noise or they're made to be really quiet for, you know, that very reason, wanting to keep quiet when there's people nearby. So those might be fun things to try and maybe add to your your toolbox, as we say. If you have a question for Dr. Megan Fleming or for me, please let us know through a private message. You can find our contact info down in the show notes. And if you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, I would so appreciate it if you would let some friends know about it. And please leave a rating and review. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. Girl Boner Radio is owned, operated, and executively produced by me, August McLaughlin, with technical producer and audio extraordinaire, Mackenzie Mazel, as part of the Period Podcast Network, an affiliate of Starburns Industries. Learn more about the Girl Boner podcast, brand, movement, and book series at girlboner.org and more about Period at periodnetwork.com. 